Um, but let me ask you this before we get started, because I'd like to give you a couple more pictures to look at. I know for some of you that doesn't get you going. For some of you it does. Uh, you know, not everybody's going to be happy, but we're trying to do our best. So um, I do want to give you a couple other pictures to look at. My first question, though, do you have any comments, suggestions, new thoughts toward what we talked about last week? And you may remember, in fact, the vicar was kind enough uh, to come down and copy down everything I wrote on the board, which is very nice. You can't do that at Joy Group because Carol Tony's is very efficient, and she has that thing erased before you can get up here. But he copied it down and then even put it into a Word document. So I can give you this if you want it next time. It's helpful for me. In fact, I think um, I'm giving... I'm giving two lectures at Camp Arcadia this summer. Not this, well, yeah, this summer. Labor Day weekend, I'm doing one called A Woman for All Seasons, and it's on Mary kind of in everyday life. And I think I'm going to use that icon we used last week and talked about, talk about grieving loss. Um, and then the other one is a marriage retreat, which I know stuns you. Um, that was a joke, Jan. Uh, they came out last week and recorded a video spot with Pastor Bruzek and I talking about our marriage retreat. The last question was, will your wives be there? Because the running joke is, we've done two of these now, and for both, our wives have not come. It always looks a little odd when we walk in together, and they're like, uh, you two are doing a marriage retreat? Out on the East Coast, it was no big deal. They're like, oh, this will be great. But you go to the Midwest, and they're like, this is a little odd. So since we're going to be in Michigan, we're going to take our wives. Um, I'm going to use one of these images at the, uh, at the retreat on Mary. So that should be kind of interesting. But do you, have any, do you have any questions, comments, thoughts, um, anything? I wrote up here kind of the basic, the basic outline from last week. We talked about the road to simplicity is remembering your responsibilities and your identity, and that comes first by Christ, second by doing what you've been given to do, and third then everything else. And the way that this gets jiggled is if this becomes one, this becomes two, and this becomes three, which is sort of the natural problem, I think. Um, and so what was, our, what was our goal last week? To grieve our loss as well, um, but also then to refocus our eyes. So do you have any questions, comments, thoughts, anything you thought about? I, I think you might be right. I was, trying to use, uh, I was trying to use what the words you guys gave me, but I think you're right. I think when, um, when you grieve a loss, it usually works sort of, you have the initial pain. Well, really, it sort of works like this. You have the initial shock. Then there's pain when you begin to sort of realize it. Then you accept it. And then what was the last thing I gave you? The last one was, oh, then there's hope. Okay? And this takes a long time. It's part of the reason why Pastor Bruzek and I will send out throughout the course of a year, you know, you probably, if you've had a death in your family, you probably have received seven cards from us throughout the course of a year. And that's very intentional. Uh, what do you know from grieving losses? Uh, you go to the funeral home. It's, let's say it's your, your spouse or your relative who's died. What happens at the funeral home? All your long-lost friends show up, Right? It's great. It's like a big family reunion. It makes it difficult, but it's still great. And then what happens two weeks after the funeral? Everybody gone. No one calls. And so partly what we try to do is keep in touch with you seven times throughout the year because as you move through this process, we need to get you as quickly as we can to hope. But we know if nobody contacts you, you're always going to be at the pain point. Maybe if you're lucky, the acceptance point, but not quite to the hopeful point. Okay? So, yeah, you're exactly right. Keep going. That actually, I don't know if that observation was made as clearly as you just did right now. That was a very good observation because um, you saw, at first glance, they looked like very similar pictures. Even the tilt of the head, they were different. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And there was, some diff there was a different amount of hopefulness on Mary's face that you didn't see on Eve's face. 
Eve was very much, at best, she was at acceptance. At worst, she was at resignation. Whereas Mary was moving past acceptance and toward hopefulness. And then you had that light sort of beaming up from underneath her, which we kind of said, well, maybe that's the light of the resurrection coming from the empty tomb. It looks like she's near a tomb. You had all of that going on together. I think you're exactly right. I think what you can learn from Mary is, um, did Mary have pain? Yeah, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Prophecy that prophesied Jesus' own death. And then there was acceptance, but very quickly she moved to hope. Um, and we can't necessarily expect to move that quickly because, I mean, she was the mother of God. So she sort of knew in some sense what was going on. But at the same time, that's what we need to get. Okay? I, I'm going to use both of them, actually. I am. And actually, that's a very good point that I will make sure I will use. In fact, I'll put it at the bottom. I once, had a, I once had someone who I worked with who used to, like, we would talk about Bible study ideas and theology, and this person would then take my ideas, write them down, and then put copyright at the bottom of the page. So then I couldn't use them because it became this person's idea and not mine, which is really theft, right? <laughs> so uh, I will make sure I put courtesy of Donna, okay? <laughs> they say, who's Donna? I'll say, I don't know. She should teach next year. This will be great, <laughs> all right? What else from last week? Anything? Part of, okay, so good. Now let's keep moving then. Part of uh, grieving, your, grieving your loss is to then refocus your eyes. Because what happens when you have a loss in your life? Where are your eyes at? They're not, yeah, they're focused on the right things. They're focused on yourself. They're focused on what you lost. They're focused on all the things you'll miss out in, on in life. They're not focused on the most important thing, which you see right here, is the person of Jesus then your responsibilities, and then everything else. So partly it's refocusing our eyes. Now, I want to take a minute. Um, you know, people have, everybody's got advice, right? Um, everybody likes to give me advice and you advice. Um, and when they give advice, what happens when people give advice? If you have 100 people giving you advice, what do you notice? It's all different. <laughs> yeah, if I polled 100 people on what I should do, I'd probably get 97 different answers. Three of you would agree. Um, so when you get advice, you get lots of advice. One piece of advice that's been given to me is uh, don't ever talk about what happened at St. John again. Now, uh, I don't actually think that's helpful because how many of you go home and say, I'm never going to talk about my husband? Right? What would happen to you if you never talked about your husband again? You'd never move to hope, right? You'd always be at the pain point because your only memory is of the painful experience. You never got to talk about it. Other people have said, talk about everything. I don't think that's right either. There's got to be some happy medium. But at the same time, um, we're enough down the road that it might be good now. Two things have happened. We're enough down the road, so there's been some time. The other thing is, um, naturally, there's been uh, a change in this congregation. And so I think the people that are here primarily right, the people here right now primarily are people who want to get better and who want to refocus their eyes on Christ. So you all sitting here are the hope for the future. And there's, there's, some, there's something helpful about talking about past problems and ways to move forward with people who are left, right? They live through it, and, and they're the ones who, unlike the prodigal son, didn't leave. The sin of the prodigal son is he left. Um, so we need to talk about that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just read a great thing. How many, well, I won't ask how many of you lived through the split in the 1970s, so then you'll reveal your age. Uh, but for some of you, well, let me just ask you this. The split, in the, the split in the Missouri Synod in the 1970s, for how many of you did that affect your family or your church? 
Yeah, so in a room of where you know, maybe half of you were alive at the time, or at least alive enough to know what was going on in the synod, probably of half of you in the room, half of you were affected by that. Um, you asked people, for some people, the split in the Missouri Synod. You all of you know what happened? This is, I mean, some of you look around like, I have no idea what he's talking about. What happened, well, I can sum it up for you in about two minutes. In the 1970s, there was a group of theologians who in some sense could be considered very liberal, and theologians who in some sense could be considered very conservative. There was a big blow up in the Synod over multiple things, um, and a group of people in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod left and started their own seminary and eventually their own synod, their own church body. Um, and this divided families. You had fathers who were pastors and sons who were pastors, and one went one way and the other went the other way. This was, as people said, this was the civil war of the Missouri Synod. And it, it, in many respects, that's very true. Well, the pain is still being felt today. In fact, a book was just published. It'll come out next month, which um, I, the guy did a brilliant job. He wrote a PhD at Northwestern, and this was his dissertation. And his dissertation was to go back on a fact-finding mission, not to come to conclusive results like the liberals were wrong or the conservatives were wrong, but to simply say, here are all the facts that were never uncovered, like taped phone conversations that have finally been released because people have died, or memos that were, have you ever been to the Concordia Historical Institute in St. Louis? You should go sometime, it's like being at the FBI. You go in the back room, no, I'm serious, you go in the back room and they have boxes that are sealed shut and they have uh, and they have dates on them and they also have you know an insignia on the top like it's been sealed with wax and it says you can't open until January 2046 and you say what's this well this was when Jack Price who was a very famous conservative was on trial in the Missouri Synod now we don't want to ruin his family's reputation but everybody should be dead by 2046 so you can open it then well guess what the time has passed now on some of these people and they've opened the files and the stuff you hear about people is just unbelievable, the stuff that was said. What you find out is the conservatives, uh, the people who, you know, of whom you're a product of, were it's, in some sense at more fault than the liberals because of what they did and what they said. The point of all that is this was a split in our church body of cosmic proportions. Um, but you need to learn from that. You need to relive past hurts because you have to get through them somehow and then hope for the future. So the guy who wrote a book review said, I sat and sobbed through the first four chapters because this is how badly I was hurt 30 years ago. Now, you can't say that's wrong. That's his way of healing. Okay? Yes. That's right. Yep. That was a very good thing. Now, you can see every, every good thing in hindsight, you know, it's 2020, and so you can see some of the bad things too. The good thing was people actually read their Bible. The bad thing was the Missouri Synod became very individualistic where sort of, that's when you had sort of the emergence of every man's a minister, right? Uh, roughly the same time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so partly, everything's got to be read in its proper context. If you had to, um, if you had to talk about some of the, some of the hurts of the past, um, what would they be? And I know that's a very broad question, but I want to get five or six things on the board just to think about them. One thing that Sandy brought up last week was, this was one of the losses, was the loss of the school. And I don't think anybody should say we shouldn't talk about that, because I think that's a very painful thing for everybody involved. Um, it's painful for those who were on the right side or the left side, it didn't matter where you were, that's a painful loss. What are some other things that happened that were very painful for this community? Yes, good, loss of friends. That's a, that's a, there are two parts to this. 
Yes, very much so. You had two things happen. One was you lost them. What was the other part? In some sense, um, they revealed their character. So um, you had people, I had people come to me and say, I can't believe so-and-so would ever act that way. But now, in the midst of all this trauma, see how that happened. What else? Good. This is like, I mean, this is like what Oprah does all day. <laughs> Dr. Phil, tell me about your problems. What problems do you have? What are some of your past hurts? I could make a million bucks, Jan. Never give anybody absolution and just ask them what their problems are. What else? School, friends, those are big. Oh, yes, very much so. I can never spell commitment, though. C-O-M-M. -M. Commitment. Yeah, and let me give you an example of this. The, the example par excellence is when you see, um, well, the saddest example is when you see CapCam commitments not made. That's the saddest example because what you had was, listen, a CapCam commitment, I mean, I'll tell you, if you want to know, I'll tell you what I gave. The reason is because I think it's a helpful thing for the church. Partly what you had was you had people make commitments. You all remember when we made the pledges? Listen, you didn't make the pledge to me. You made the pledge to the Lord. And to break a commitment like that is to break a commitment with the Lord. So partly that's where it can be seen very clearly. Yes, exactly right. There are commitments on both sides that were broken. Um, so, but some are a little more tangible than others. What else? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't bad talk someone you want out. Because like our dog, what happens with our dog? Nobody will take her. You're stuck with me. Exactly. See, this is my great revenge. <laughs> All right, so you're exactly right. Ruins are standing in the community. And I'll tell you this. I'll turn my microphone off for this, too. So uh, that's one of the things you have to grieve. Um, and that's a loss now. It also, closing a school ruins your standing in the community. Kirby, you came in at just the right time. You came in. It's actually good you weren't here five minutes ago. OK, what else? What else? I heard the deep sigh. I didn't mean it to be that upsetting. I'm just telling you reality. This is the way life is. So what else? How many of you are going to go see The Right, the new movie, The Right? Rachel? <laughs> I had someone, no lie, call me at, part of the reason I was late to say prayers was I had somebody call at 8.58, and they said, I got a strange question. I said, OK, and I know this guy, great guy. He said, um, you know, The Right comes out today. Have you seen it? I said, well, no, I haven't seen it. It comes out today. <laughs> Unlike what people say, I am at work right now. <laughs> you did call me at extension 424. No, I said, I actually went and watched the trailer because, one, I think movies that involve the ministry are always intriguing, like Doubt. I thought that was a great movie. Um, and I, I thought, oh, I'll look at the trailer. So I watched the trailer. You know why I won't see it? Because I've been in those experiences. And that stuff is real. And the other thing is, you'll never, it's like, if you can take this the right way, it has the same effect that pornography does. When you watch pornography, what do people say? I can never get it out of my head. It's the exact same thing with this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So partly, gossip works the same way because it's evil. You can never get evil out of your head. Oh, yeah. Yes, it is like the telephone. What, and what happens at the end of the telephone game? You don't recognize the message. Exactly right. So partly that's the way gossip works. Go ahead, Vic. Yep, exactly right. 
Yeah, the, the, sign, the mark of evil, and I've said this on multiple occasions, the mark of evil is to finally be convinced of your own lies. Right? You tell yourself something enough that you become convinced of it. And I think what the vicar is saying is very helpful, which is, I mean, I've got, I've got many people who I'm very close with who I know have spoken with people who didn't tell the truth. And what's the reaction to that conversation? They often say, I know it's not true, but it made me question it for just a minute. And that's the, exactly right, that's the mark that you've touched something evil, right? Good, what else? Are you guys having as much fun as I am, Leslie? Yes, Lisa. Oh, go ahead, Barb, let's go to Barb, we'll come back to you, okay? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, once you, and that's partly the way, that's partly the way gossip and evil work. When you know a little bit, what happens? You want more, it's like a drug. And at the same time, if you don't know anything, then you ask yourself, well, should I know something? You know, should I be aware? What, what happened? Well, should I be aware of something? Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, yeah. It's like the Anthony Hopkins movie. There's some things you don't want to see. Yeah. I think, yeah. I, yeah, I think, well, yes, you would think they'd be allies. That's part of it. Um, you pray that they're allies, um, but you know from personal experience they're not always allies. That's a different thing. But you're exactly right. I no, exactly, yeah. Unfortunately, it turns out to be that way. Because what's the mentality in our, let's just talk big church Lutheran, and specifically in the Northern Illinois District. What's the, what's the tagline from the district president? New starts, new believers. So what's the mark of a successful church? Bigger. So it is a competition. It is a competition. And that's what we've sadly experienced with the loss of some of our members, some of whom I think with very good pastoral care we could have reclaimed or held, um, but it became a competition with other folks. And this was very, made very clear to us. Well, we got 15 of St. John's people. Isn't that great? So this is the mentality. But here's the thing. Let me give you something else. Vicar, what do you always say to me about the ministry here at St. John? You always say, in every other parish, yeah, they don't, here's the thing, in most other parishes, in fact, there's a guy upstate, I'm going to turn my microphone off for this too, and let me just, let me, and let me broaden it to say, it's not just the pastors, so it's sort of a taint against the whole, against the whole church, because I think some of you who, um, all of you actually are very faithful people, I think some of you have received the brunt of this as well, because why? You've stuck around, Right? You've been faithful, you've not told lies, you've tried to search for the truth. It doesn't mean you and I agree on everything, and actually that's not the way a church should be. The church isn't, I mean, it's sinful. So the church, the Lord doesn't expect that I'm going to say, let's have oatmeal after church, and you all say, oh, I love oatmeal, oatmeal's great. But we're supposed to work together. It's a back and forthness that's not evil, it's not dark. Um, and so it's not just about me, it's also about those of you who have been faithful. Um, now, this is an article that just came out, I don't know, two or three days ago in the Lutheran. The Lutheran is the ELCA version of the Lutheran Witness. Is that right? It's the ELCA version, roughly, of the Lutheran Witness. So this is their major denominational magazine. Okay? And this came out, I found this stunning. In fact, if I, I couldn't have written the article more, more um, accurately than this. Okay? Now the reason I want to give this to you is, I think it's always good to hear somebody else's um, experience, and at the same time, it might help us move forward. So 
And I actually sent this, just so you know, I sent this to the governing board. I sent this to the elders. Um, and I may give it out at Sunday morning Bible study just because we're talking about the ministry. And the whole reason we're having this discussion right now is we're trying to find our spot. What's your spot as a Christian? What's my spot as a Christian and as a pastor? You remember St. Augustine said, you know, for you I am bishop, with you I am Christian. Okay? So there's no sense in which I'm saying I'm above you, outside of you, different than you, although my vocation is dramatically different than yours. So we need to figure this all out in real time. Bullying the pastor. Obviously real names have been, you know, removed. If hindsight is 2020, Pastor Mary's husband Paul, obviously this is a woman pastor, so you know, it is what it is, has pretty good vision. When the chair of the call committee phoned his wife to tell her the congregation was calling her, but the vote wasn't unanimous, he got the first clue of what was to come. He recalls with candor the tumultuous years that followed. I can still remember when Dennis Wente called me and said, the congregation decided to call you. I said, really? I said, what was the vote? He said, well, there were 13 people that said no. <laughs> I said, oh, that, that's good. <laughs> uh, I don't know who the 13 people are, but still interesting. He remembers back some 17 years ago when his wife first told him she wanted to be a pastor. He supported her call to the ministry, and they narrowed her seminary search to where he could get a job. But even before the first year and her first call ended, there were rocks on the road. When Pastor Mary gave the nod to another new face to try her hand at education ministry, longtime members became resentful and angry. So people don't hate change, they hate loss. They lost that spot. Mary wanted Vacation Bible School to be less about parties and more about faith formation. That's not a bad thing. And she wanted to take a fresh look at the urban neighborhood in which the church had been situated for years. Next page. She wanted to build connections. It is in those connections that we meet and do ministry. But that requires the congregation, Paul said. There were people who were supportive, but they were all in the outer ring of influence. The inner ring just wanted a chaplain, not a leader. I find that stunning. What do you know about a chaplain? Yeah, it's a hired hand. It's, it's, it's what I'm going to give you in probably two weeks. Um, it was the Missouri Synod's first mentality towards pastors, which was, in the words of one of their lay leaders, pastors are public servants. You only call them when you have a crisis. But other than that, yep. Yeah, if you have a hospital chaplain, when do you call him? When somebody's dying. Exactly right. For the rest of the time, he's in his office. Doesn't mean he doesn't do good work. They do very good work. But his job is not to be a pastor. Susan Ninebar is a senior consultant and mediator with the Alban Institute in Washington, D.C., a center of learning and leadership development with a focus on congregations. So she's heard plenty of stories similar to this one. Now, Lisa, this does get to your point. Maybe there are lots of congregations like this. Who knows? Pastor bullying, along with other sorts of bullying, is a phenomenon undergoing a resurgence. It has resurfaced, perhaps, because of the political climate. We're more polarized than ever. People think you can talk your pastor the way you can talk to President Obama, right? Which is just un unheard of. In fact, as I'll give you on Sunday, the fourth commandment says you can't even talk to him that way. You have four fathers. You have, a, you, have, um, you have three fathers. You have an earthly father, you have a governmental father, and you have a spiritual father. And as Luther says, you give your spiritual father a double honor. Um, but in the more than 20 years I've been a consultant, I've seen an increase in incivility over the years. Although congregations are notorious for what they're willing to tolerate in the name of being a Christian community. 
the healthiest congregations have the lowest tolerance for inappropriate behavior. Now, isn't that interesting? The healthiest congregations have the lowest tolerance for inappropriate behavior. Unhealthy congregations tolerate the most outrageous behavior. I don't need to give you examples. Just think back to our you know, past 24 months. For Mary and Paul's family, the behavior was outrageous. The same woman who called to offer Mary the job became her nemesis, always behind her back, never face to face. Gossip, darkness, evil, convinced of your own lies. How many of our problems were resolved in the light? Very few. How many of the problems were caused in the darkness? All of them. Mary would come home from meetings shaking, Paul said. This is how I come home to Abby, actually. That was partly a joke, just to loosen you all up in the midst of this very serious conversation. She felt like she'd been physically threatened, like this woman might attack her. Of course, she already had. She was emotionally and spiritually abused. The couple spent one to two hours every evening debriefing who had abused Mary that day. I couldn't handle that stuff that was coming home every night, Paul said. I finally said, you need to get help. Mary did receive help and a year ago resigned without another call. Her husband moved to another city to stay employed, so they now live in separate states. It's unclear whether we'll still be married in a year, her husband said. That's how much damage this has caused. This is real life stuff, okay? And that's, I want to, the point of all this is to show you how powerful evil is. It doesn't just affect reputations, everything on this side of the board. Loss of school, loss of friends, loss of community, uh, standing in the community. It, it doesn't affect just that. It actually affects real life people with real life marriages. In fact, if you look around the room, not today, I meant in the parish, if you look around, what was one of the first things to be troubled in all of this? The marriages. In fact, one of the marks of being faithful is, do you have a good marriage? Do you have a healthy marriage? That's not always the mark, but sometimes it is. And one of the things that was instantly troubled in all of this was the marriages of some of those involved. Not everybody, but some. Meanwhile, in another synod, why, well, now let me just ask you, why is that? Marriage is the most intimate union a person can have, and next to Christ in the church, it's all you've got. So if you want to get after someone, what do you do? You split them off from their spouse, and suddenly then... You go back to Eden. Why did, why did the Lord form Eve? Because it's not good that man should be alone. So if man's alone, you're back to what the Lord didn't intend in Eden. That's the goal of evil. That's the goal of Satan. At the same time, Pastor Max was struggling in a congregation a few states away. He made it nearly three years into this, his first call, before things turned sour, then downright nasty. He calls his experience a classic case of many first-call pastors, called to people in situations that are difficult for even the most experienced pastor because that's all the congregation can afford. And that you see all the time. Young guys like me, um, I'm not experienced, but guys like me get sent to parishes that have tons of trouble, and guess what? They're all by themselves. Recipe for disaster. In fact, a, uh, a very nice young man had tons of trouble. He was a pastor in this district. Um, and he had bouts with depression and other things like that, but he had tons of trouble in his parish. What did he do? Walked off into the woods, shot himself. Okay? That's what happens. In Max's church, the cycles of conflict go back generations, he said. This is my point to you, Lisa. His predecessor suffered a similar fate. I've had nasty letters slid under my door saying, you're not welcome here, why don't you just leave? Members have called him names, started rumors about him, and slashed his tires. It's as one person said to me, you'll leave on your own or we'll force you out. 
Okay? It's part of their DNA and how they treat their pastors, he said. Decades ago, I learned crosses on the parsonage lawn. That's why I don't own a parsonage, by the way. <laughs> Although the vicar does have a vicarage house. Max said the bullies are members of four or five families, lifelong members who don't welcome outsiders. The worst part was the way I felt. I started to think, and this is your question, Barb, I guess it's me. There must be something wrong with me. You forget why you got into this sort of calling, he said. He's been saved by a part-time call to a healthy and active congregation in a neighboring town. If it hadn't been for them, he said, I would very likely not be in the ministry today. Max acknowledges mistakes he made as well, and this is true for all of us, which he said are typical first-call blunders, not communicating clearly and understanding how some of his decisions would be received. But he said the way he was treated is larger than any of the mistakes I've made. They'd be doing this if it were me or someone else. Not only has the bullying affected his self-esteem, it's taken a toll on his and added to stagnation of the, of the congregation. Visitors can feel it, he said. Who wants to be part of a community that not only tears the pastor down, but each other down? That's not a congregation in mission, a positive presence in the community, he said. And when people don't join, you are the one at fault. Then they say they can't pay you because there are fewer people in church. That wears you out after a while. Okay? And this is to Leslie's point about standing in the community. Who would want it? Now, we do have one prospective member in the room. I'm very sorry you're listening to all of this. But real honestly, with all that's been said, if you believed everything that was said, why would you ever join here? It is, uh, I was going to say, what's a miracle? It is a miracle that we have over 30 people in the catechumenate. It's a miracle that last year we brought in over 30 people to the church, many of whom have stuck around. This doesn't happen in this kind of environment. Something divine is going on. Ninebar agrees that Max's experience may indeed be connected to money. There's tremendous pressure on pastors to be change agents soon rather than later. And this has to do with the economy, and it has to do with denominational decline, she said. But it's not just about money, but rather power. Often the pastor doesn't accurately read the formal and informal power structures, she added, like who's at play in the church. If a strong bond between pastor and congregation hasn't developed in the first 18 to 24 months, or if the bond isn't a good one, trouble will quickly brew, Ninebar says. When conflict erupts, those at top and those who are most vulnerable suffer. And sometimes that's one and the same. Who's more vulnerable than a pastor's wife? Nobody. Both Mary's and Max's situations were made worse by the size of the congregations small ones operated by matriarchs and patriarchs. Before jumping into his next call, Max said he'll ask plenty of questions about, quote, mutual ministry. What does that mean to the congregation? He'll ask honest, about honest and open communication and whether there are parking lot meetings. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is what I said. I couldn't have written this article more accurately. Pastor bullying has been made worse by technology. What used to happen after church council meetings in the parking lot or on the phone to a few people can now be fueled electronically, involving more than just a few members and much faster. I mean, I've had first-hand experience with this. Emails, Facebook, you know, pick your thing. Not only the parking lot meetings, that was easy to spot. You could look out there and say, oh, so-and-so's talking to so-and-so, I know what that is. Now it's like I have to creep on Facebook every day to know what people are saying about me. Frankly, Vic, that's not fun. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> I know. It's unbelievable. Those who wanted me out will claim a victory when I leave, Max said. There are good people here, a few who have come up and said, we're so sorry this is happening, we support you. 
When I tell them, I need you to be on church council, they say they can't do that. They don't want to take on the bullies. I know, I know. Now, that's the strange thing. This is why I would write the article a little differently. But, but let, me just, let me just, if you go down to some of the comments, there are only five or six here, but I just want to read two of them. Look at the very first one. Wow, I'm really surprised by all of this. Not that there are people out there who try to bully the pastor. I'm a teacher, and I know of parents who try to bully us. That happens all the time. Teachers take a lot of heat. But that the bishop allows the cycle to continue. So partly, you know, why did, why did this bishop in this story not step in? Then look at uh, David Marks. I think that's the one. The article is dead on. In our case, we have a church council leadership that cannot work with our pastoral staff. Now, that's not true. The council leadership consists of legacy members who are the matriarchs and patriarchs of the congregation, who, in my opinion, want a church they had 30 years ago. They have, uh, they have window dressed in their agenda under the skies of a budget issue. They even went as far as having a vote on removal of the associate pastor. The measure was overwhelmingly defeated by a congregational vote. This is purely about power and control, nothing else. Uh, you know, when we had the vote on the budget when the school was, when we voted on what to do with the school, this was probably probably 15 months ago, a year ago, a year ago November. You know the vote to uh, cut the church spending and cut the church staff? I was told before the meeting by someone involved in that recommendation, the vote was uh, to kick one of the pastors out. That was the vote. And so, thankfully, it didn't go through. Um, but I remember going to that meeting that night saying to Abby, Ugh, can you get a job someplace else, like full-time tomorrow, just in case we need health benefits? Because that was a real-life issue, was um, they came in saying, and this is the good thing, at least we had a heads up. Now, they expected we were, you know, sort of too, not bright enough to figure it all out. Um, thankfully, we were about eight steps ahead. But one of the steps was uh, to decrease the church staff and fire at least one, maybe more, maybe more than one pastor. Um, so this is a real-life thing. Now, the question is, with all of that, how can we grieve our losses? And me, too. I mean, there are, there are some things. Here's the thing. There are some things in this church body that I will never be able to do because of what, happens, what, is, what has happened to me here um, and the way reputations get ruined and all of that. But how do you grieve your losses and then refocus your eyes on Christ? And refocusing your eyes on Christ means not doing the same thing again. You set your eyes in one direction and you say, we're going after Jesus. How can we do that? Exactly right. Yep. Vicar, that's very helpful. No, it is helpful. The point is, you got to learn your lines. And the lines are things like, hey, we don't say that. Evil is darkness. Everything in the light. And I'll tell you what the real line is. Matthew 18. That's the real line everybody has to learn. If you have a beef, go see somebody's face to face. This all got started with people having beefs and going 3-2-1 in Matthew 18 instead of 1-2-3. They went the whole community, two or three people, and finally then, okay, maybe we'll go talk to the person we're, we're peeved at. Instead of saying, hey, you stood up and said we can't overspend our budget by a million dollars in the school. What do you mean by that? Instead of the whole community, you hate education, you hate kids, you hate whatever. Yes, Vicar. That's right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, and so good. So your point is a very helpful one, which is you can't tolerate inappropriate behavior. Um, and in real time, that can be very difficult because the first question is, who determines inappropriate behavior? Inappropriate behavior always has to be determined first and foremost by scripture and particularly by the 10 words. There are certain things you don't do. So for instance, um, if people don't tell the truth and don't come to church and, and want something they shouldn't have, 
someone needs to say, gosh, that's, you know, that's 3, 5, 9, and 10. That, those, are, those are things that are harming you. And it's the persistence in that behavior which then um, leads someone to be harmed by the Eucharist and not helped by it. The Eucharist is always help. It's always medicine. But as you know, if it's prescribed in the wrong way, or to those who don't need it, or to those who need a bigger dose, what happens? It actually hurts you, or it leaves you in your sickness. So, um, I mean, you and I have had a lot of these conversations, and I think one thing that we both talked about was how difficult it is to tell somebody the truth, but how loving it can be to tell someone the truth. And telling the truth needs to be done in a kind, compassionate way, but it still needs to be the truth. And the truth is what Pastor Bruce has said now for months, which is certain sins just aren't good for you. Certain sins just aren't good for you. Yes, Sandy. That's exactly right. Real, yes. Um, and we talked about this last week, and I know, I know you weren't here last week, but what we talked about very briefly was you almost have to lose your ideal, your ideals in life. Because, I, frankly, Jesus is a realist. You know? We all have ideals, but part of, part of yielding yourself to the sufferings of Christ is to say, Maybe this is my lot. Maybe this is the way life is going to be. And actually, that can be a very blessed life. Um, and I think you're exactly right. You have to, you have to get behind Jesus. And, um, and too often, not only here, but in other aspects of life, we've tried to grieve by going around Jesus. Maybe Jesus' way was too tough. Maybe it wasn't what we wanted. Maybe we didn't even think about asking him what his way was. Um, but everybody has losses. The losses here pile on to other losses. And we have to be able to grieve that by falling in line behind Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes. And I think that. Yeah. And I think that will that will be realized tangibly in a move to a new space. It's like you said last week about when your husband died, you couldn't live in the house anymore. Part of our trouble is we still live in the same house. We had a death. We still live in the same house. Now we got to go to a new house, and let's hope we can sell our old house, <laughs> right? That was a joke. It was a joke. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, it's, a very, yeah, it's a very strange thing. I usually have one of two experiences. Either people go the other direction. Like I was at the gym once, and somebody who left was in front of me. This person didn't know I was there. They turn around, and they see me. They get up off the thing and walk out the door. I'm like, hey, okay. <laughs> and I, here's the thing. It's awkward for them, too. So you have to, you have to just be nice to people and and it's, it's like, you're exactly right, it's like the elephant in the room. And usually what happens is the whole conversation is probably, uh, it's like kindness on steroids. Everybody's trying to be very, like, big smile. And we need to get back to the point where you can't be angry about people who left, and you actually have to befriend people who left, um, but realize that some people left who left because of gossip and evil. And, and those people, frankly, you do actually have to stay away from because if you touch evil, it will incarnate. And until people can come free of the evil, and frankly, that's for the Lord to decide. Um, it's very dangerous to sort of touch those things. Okay? Yes. Yeah, exactly right. That's right. Yeah, your enemy is not your enemy is not other people. Your enemy is the presence of evil in the world, and sadly, that touches people who then give it life. Um, but that person, in and of themselves, is not your enemy, and never can be because they're not Christ's enemy. Um, and if they are Christ's enemy, that's up for Christ to decide, not for us. That's right. Exactly right. And they, yes, yes, I'll just leave it, period. Good job. Yeah. You look very young. You know that? I'm serious. You do. 
40 years is a long time, and you look very young. That's right. It's the screw tape letters from C.S. Lewis, yeah. Mary, you had one thing. Go ahead. I know you're not. Keep going. I know. And I think, you know, next next week, I don't, I, of course, would like to say Pastor Bruzik will be down here. I don't know who will be down here. Someone will be down here. Um, uh, no, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> uh, someone will be down here. Next week, I want to give you, or maybe he will, or maybe we'll do something else. I don't know. Actually, I was going to give you the woman caught in adultery. Who's going to throw the first rock? Okay? Because this is partly how you get healed. How do you get healed? One, don't be a Pharisee. So don't throw rocks when you've got sins. And how also do you get healed? If you've got sins, confess them and be forgiven and move on. Go and sin no more. And this, anybody know what this is? It's very odd. That's Job's wife. Remember what happened in the book of Job. Job's being tempted. The Lord says, okay, Satan, you can tempt him a little bit. Um, but, you know, he's been faithful. He's without sin. You remember what happens with Job's wife. Job's wife comes in the darkness of night and says, if you just let go of all this, can you really trust God and all? Just let go for a minute and it's all going to be fine. So the point of all that is, and it's with the bullying thing, even those who are closest to you can sometimes hurt you, right? I mean, there's no reason Job's wife should do that. Um, and the reason Job's wife does it is because her eyes aren't focused in that direction. So even those closest to you can hurt you, and that's something we all need to remember, especially when, what did we lose? Close friends, our community, our standing in the community. All these things happen because those closest to us, um, in some sense, hurt us, and we need to get through that. How do we get through it? Right here. Okay? So that'll be for next week. Um, keep this if you want. You know, don't keep it. I don't actually care. I'm going to keep it because I found it very helpful. Um, and we may talk about it on Sunday morning as we talk about the ministry. I'm not sure just yet. Okay? All right. Thanks for coming. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming. We're going to move toward hope. That's what we got to get. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.